Luke 2, beginning in verse 8, <clears throat> excuse me, tells us, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And Father, we pause and humbly ask just for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit to continue now in our worship, Lord. We sang, we've prayed and fellowshiped and done other things, and we want to continue now to worship by giving you <clears throat> just the attention of our hearts and our minds that, Lord, you would speak things into our lives personally that we need to hear. So we ask, Lord, whatever that means for us, take away what would hinder or distract and speak to us by your Spirit through what you have spoken here in the written Word of God, and we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, unplanned events and unplanned changes can sometimes, I found, end up being the most valuable experiences in our lives. Oftentimes, we can tend to be pretty preoccupied in doing routine life here on this earth, and so we obviously don't foresee unplanned things, nor do we factor in that upcoming thing that's about to happen in our life that we didn't know it would. Yet God at his times will on occasion, the way that he works, allow an interruption to enter into our life experience. He doesn't always give us advance notice. That's why it's called an interruption. And interruptions may indeed disrupt our lives, but they're not always bad. They don't always have to be harmful. At times, God can allow a blessed interruption that actually ends up on the back end changing things for the good. And in today's text that we're looking at in front of us, we find an interruption that changed everything, but it was clearly for the greater good. It was a blessed interruption that brought much greater blessing into the lives of many, many people. And it was really one of a series of unplanned interruptions that God brought to pass through the bringing of the Lord Jesus Christ into our world. These interruptions started with Mary and Joseph, who we know were given, if you would, the privilege of the earthly stewardship of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as he came into this world. And we find the biblical narrative of the Christmas event recorded in Matthew chapter 1, and also in Luke chapters 1 and 2, we get the biblical narrative of Christmas, which describes the humble entry of how Almighty God entered into this world with you and I and came and lived among us as a man to help us through the Lord Jesus' entry. And though that was all part of God's plan, it was prophesied hundreds of years in advance. In fact, 
They've calculated somewhere around a few hundred prophecies, predictions that God made that were specifically accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ as he came, indicating that he was not just another human being, but that he came from outside of this world. He was God himself entering into this world and ending up fulfilling predictions to verify exactly who he was. And though the Lord Jesus' entry was a part of God's plan, it clearly interrupted the plans of humanity in a lot of different ways, yet God's plan was much greater than their plan and brought greater blessing. As I said, predicted some 700 years prior by Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before it came to pass, Isaiah, by the Spirit of the Lord, proclaimed that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and that that son was to be given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is, that God would be living among mankind, and that he would leave heaven's throne and would be miraculously conceived by a miracle of the Spirit of God, that the life of the Son of God would be conceived in the womb of a virgin woman. Luke chapter 1 describes the event this way. We've often heard it before. Let me reacquaint you with it. Luke 1 says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a virgin pledged or betrothed, the might say engaged, to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. To which Mary then responded, asking the angel, How will this be? In other words, how can this come to pass? since I am a virgin. And the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One who is to be born will be the Son of God. So God spoke of how this would happen. And then on that right occasion, God brought this to pass. God in the person of his Son literally added another, if you would, uh, dimension to his life, God who already was full deity, full divinity, God added to his nature a second nature. He added humanity to himself. So God adds humanity to his divinity so that Jesus might be born fully God and fully man at the exact same time. So that Jesus, the son of God, could be the perfect mediator between holy God and sinful mankind so that he could restore back relationship that was lost between holy God and mankind ever since the day that the first man on this earth, Adam, rebelled against God and brought sin into the human race through his rebellion against God. Ever since Adam, the entire human race has all been infected with the same terminal illness, that we are born sinful, we prove that out by the way that we live out our lives. These children are absolutely adorable. I now have two grandchildren, a third on the way. They're even more adorable than my own children because I don't have to take all the responsibility with them. But what I can tell you is this, you don't have to teach them how to misbehave. They inherently know how to do what's wrong. And the reason is, is because the word of God is true. We're not born good. We're born fallen, depraved. We are born 
with a sinful bent automatically from birth, and then we just prove it out as we live our lives and we make mistakes and thought, word, and deed as sinful people. Now, because of that reality that we're all infected with that, God in his love had a situation that he needed to solve. And this is what the coming of Jesus was all about, that he would enter into this world to rescue us. Matthew 1 tells it this way. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, remember, she's already been notified. Luke 1 says that she was going to conceive miraculously the Savior, the Son of God in her womb. It says that she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her betrothed husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was thinking something has gone horribly wrong. Mary and I have been morally pure. We're not even married yet. Something horrible has happened. And God said, no, no, something wonderful has happened. Remember, Joseph, you're the son of David. You remember the promise of the Messiah that he, the Savior, would come through the line of David. And what is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. Everything is right on track, Joseph. Take her home as your wife. And it tells us the angel then said, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Again, think of this. God was giving to this earth the most important baby that was ever born, the holy son of God from heaven, was about to be born on this earth. Now, you would expect, as any parent would, this is the most important baby ever born on the earth. You'd expect the most ideal conditions, the absolute best OBGYN team, the most sterile, safe, perfect, luxurious environment possible, right? Because isn't that how God works? You got to have the best in life. And we would think everything would be perfect, and yet we find Jesus born in less than ideal circumstances. In fact, if you look with me back at our text, if we can get a runway to our verses, look with me in Luke 2, 1, as it tells us how Jesus came into this earth. It says, it came to pass, Luke 2, 1, in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And that census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, to his hometown, so they could register for this taxation. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, which was in the north, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, which is down all the way in the southern part of Israel, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That was his hometown, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered there with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. In other words, she's in her latter term of this pregnancy. And in that day, listen, you're not getting a quick plane flight from northern to southern Israel. You're not getting a nice smooth car ride. You're probably sitting on the back of a donkey with a nine-month pregnant woman. You can fill in the rest of the details. Taking a long journey all the way down, verse 6, so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. The birth pangs begin 
And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. The term describes a animal's feeding trough, a stone feeding trough. I've seen these when I was there in Israel. Literally, that's what he was laid in because there was no room for them in the inn. So again, take notice. You want to talk about an unplanned interruption. You've got a nine-month pregnant wife, and now you hear, honey, uh, we're going to have to travel from northern Israel to southern Israel, miles and miles and miles on the back of it. And he's got a nine-month pregnant wife here. They're forced again into more changes, another interruption. But again, as the world looked like it was under the control of Quirinius, who was governing at that time, the reality was the world was revolving around the womb of Mary. God was trying to get Mary to where she needed to be in Bethlehem because Micah chapter 5, another prophecy, said that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. So God made the whole world <laughs> have to adjust because he needed a way because you know they're not going to take a little casual trip down to Bethlehem at nine months pregnant. So God does this to get Mary right to where she needs to be, another adjustment, part of God's plan, another interruption. And look how Jesus is born, it says, it seems in the middle of an open field or in some potentially cave, we don't know, but it says there was no room in the common inn and she brings forth her son. Notice no team there helping. She brought forth her own son, lays him in a manger in an animal's feeding trough as a crib. Again, as Jesus is being born, you want to talk about a lowly beginning? No special privileges? Most of us in this room, the majority of us, had a much better beginning to life than Jesus did. And this is how God entered into the world, making himself completely approachable, completely humble. In fact, the events happen in such obscurity. Jesus is so overlooked. The rest of humanity is so preoccupied. No one even knows that the Lord of glory has just been born. In fact, so unaware is everyone, God has to now send out angels from heaven to go announce his own son's birth because everyone is preoccupied and no one even knows. The whole world needed the Lord Jesus Christ, yet everyone was overlooking him. Nothing new under the sun, is there really? <laughs> the whole world needed him, yet everyone was preoccupied and God says, I better bring the announcement to make this evident, which brings us to verse 8. It says there were out in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, verse 8 describes these shepherds, and I think they become a fitting representation, really, of all of humanity, if you would, kind of preoccupied out in the fields. And they're preoccupied doing their thing. They're distracted with routine things of earthly life. These shepherds at this point have little concern regarding God, Little concern regarding God's plan. They have no awareness of spiritual things. It just says that they're shepherds out in the fields. They're preoccupied, keeping watch over their flock. Notice, dwelling in the darkness of night. Now, as we look at these shepherds, as I said, they're a very fitting picture, really, of humanity because they're much like we once all were at one point in our life. We were out in the world. We were living in the dark. We weren't conscious of and probably didn't even maybe care much about the things of God. Many of us who today are born-again Christians, at one point, that was us. And I can tell you this, there are many, many people today, multitudes of people this Christmas season who are doing the same thing. 
They're occupied out in the fields of this world, doing routine life, preoccupied, completely unaware and completely oblivious, and in some ways, completely careless of anything to do with spiritual things or the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it's in God's mercy that these shepherds are who God selects to give the birth announcement to. I mean, think about this again, if you would. This is the most important child ever born, the most influential birth that's ever happened on this earth. And look what God does. He does not bring the birth announcement to the king. He doesn't bring the birth announcement to a ruler. He doesn't bring the birth announcement to the high priest or even to a prophet of the Lord. God brings this birth announcement of the Son of God, the special news, first of all, to a group of common, lowly shepherds. And we have a very romanticized view of shepherds today because we put out little manger scenes and we have this kind of you know, unique view of them. You have to understand in that day, culturally, shepherds were considered by reputation to be very questionable men. They were honestly looked down upon in society. They were very uncultured because their occupation had them often living out in the fields, outside of the towns and the cities, Many a times, the practices and lifestyles of shepherds became quite questionable because they would be doing things out in the fields. They were kind of men who were known to be somewhat culturally rough around the edges, unrefined, if you would. Maybe the best way I could illustrate it, having had three daughters, thankfully, by the grace of God, they, they all married good, godly men. But shepherds were kind of the, the men in the community that you didn't want your daughter to date. That was kind of the viewpoint of a shepherd. Oh, no, just please don't bring home a shepherd. Anything but a shepherd. This is how shepherds were looked upon. They weren't allowed to testify in court because they were perceived to be dishonest men. They weren't even allowed ceremonially to be welcomed into the temple. They had a reputation of being somewhat immoral and sinful. Whether it was true of them or not, that was the stigma that was upon these men because of the reputation they had built among society. Yet it's to this group, in society who's looked upon as lowly and unimportant and immoral that God approaches first to make them aware that his son has come into the world. Why? Because God loves all people equally. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God wants them to be aware because to God, he doesn't care about a person's class in society. He doesn't care how much money a person has or what their ethnicity is or what their racial status is. Or, that's not what God's concerned about. What God cares about is the soul of every human being. And so God goes to these individuals, the most unlikely ones in their situation, and he reveals himself to them. Look, God did not come, folks, for those who think they're righteous or for people who feel like they're better than others or for those who deem themselves as spiritual or okay or holier than thou. God came and Jesus was sent for those who know they're sinful, who know that they need help, who realize their own depraved condition. The Bible tells us that Jesus, when he came, he said that he came to seek and save the lost. The idea is even those who know they're lost and need direction and need help. This is who Jesus came for. Notice these shepherds, what they're doing, it says they're out in the fields, 
keeping watch over their flock. So again, they're busily occupied with their activities of everyday life. They're attending to their job. They're handling their responsibilities. Their attention is on foremost everything at this point that's temporal, that which is material. And again, a fitting picture because as I said, this is a picture of so many today, busily occupied, attending to the things in their fields of whatever their fields involve. For some people this morning, they're out in the fields of the stores and, and buying last-minute gifts, and they're preoccupied in the fields of shopping and so forth. Others are busily attending to this holiday function and that. There are a few, for certain, you know, who contemplated, should I go to a church service this morning? Oh, no, the fruitcake's not done yet. Please, we don't need the fruitcake. That's disgusting. <laughs> Just in case that was you. But, you know, people, we become so preoccupied doing this and doing that and our total attention and the main focus of so many in humanity is foremost on what is of this world. Just like the shepherds, they're, they're occupied with everything that's physical and temporal. They're unaware, they're unconcerned of what's spiritual and eternal. And even as these shepherds, many people like the shepherds out there in the dark of night, they're living in darkness spiritually. And they're living in the dark. You know, it's interesting. Luke 2 tells us later in the chapter that a man named Simeon prophesies about the birth of the Lord Jesus. And one of the things he said of Jesus is he said of Jesus, he is a light to bring revelation to the world. That is to show people what they aren't seeing as they're living in darkness. At this point, God turns the attention of the shepherds from what's earthly and temporal to everything that's spiritual we're going to see. God says, you're preoccupied in the earthly and the temporal. Let me bring another divine interruption. And God brings another interruption now. Now it's to the shepherds, and he breaks into their life to reveal to them the things of the Lord. Look what happens. Verse 9, behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord, it says, verse 9, shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So notice what transpires here. First of all, their circumstances are abruptly changed. <laughs> abruptly changed. All of a sudden, God brings a vast interruption that they did not see coming. Here they are just hanging out in the dark of night, keeping track of their sheep out there. And out of the dark of night, it says, verse 9, look at it, it says, an angel of the Lord just suddenly appears and stands before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. In other words, imagine these angelic beings step out of the eternal dimension, radiating with all the glory of heaven's eternal brilliance. Imagine the overpowering light of the eternal glory of the Lord. It's now shining upon these shepherds, and they are now incredibly conscious of everything that's spiritual. They're very keenly aware now in a way they weren't just a moment ago because God's light has just shined into their life personally of the reality of the spiritual realm and the things of the Lord. And the experience, verse 9, it says, causes them to be, look what it says, greatly afraid. Not just afraid, greatly afraid. They weren't just a little unsettled. The picture here is the experience causes them to feel overwhelmed in their human weakness and left incredibly humbled. 
It says megas, greatly, greatly afraid, the language is, and probably it makes sense. They instantly had a sense as the glory and the light of the Lord shone upon them. They probably had an instant sense of their own sinfulness. Just like maybe you and I did when the Lord shined his light into our life and all of a sudden you are gripped with the reality of your own sinfulness and you finally see it for yourself. And these shepherds, I imagine, were greatly afraid because they realized, oh my goodness, God is real and we're not right with him. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Are we going to be judged? Is something, what's going to transpire? They're struck with a holy fear. And please note, when someone has a true spiritual encounter with the glory of the Lord, they are left very humbled, very broken. And these men are greatly afraid. As I said, at this point, their attention and focus has completely changed. (laughs) It is on everything that is spiritual. Now, I think it's a good reminder to all of us, you know At Christmas, I believe God desires to take our attention off of the temporal and to put our attention on the spiritual of what really matters. Hey, ask yourself this morning by way of application during the holiday season here, are you more concerned about everything being right circumstantially or are you more concerned about just knowing things are right spiritually? It should be the latter. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We notice also that they also received a word of assurance from God. God gives them a great assurance. They're terrified. They're greatly afraid. Look at verse 10. The angel said to them in assurance, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings, good news of great joy, which will be to all people. So their initial reaction to this interruption, to the unplanned experience, is becoming dreadfully afraid. They find themselves terrified, naturally worried if something's gone wrong, if they're about to be severely judged maybe by God. They're afraid of the unknown. Oh my goodness, what's coming next in the next moment? But notice the assurance is that they did not need to be afraid nor terrified nor did they need to be worried about what was to soon come after these events. You know, sometimes I think our initial reaction as human beings to unplanned events, to abrupt changes, when things happen that we weren't planning on and we don't have all the details and we're wondering what's now going to come next, is like these shepherds, we tend to be afraid. Sometimes we're greatly afraid when some interruption happens or some unplanned thing happens And God's word of assurance, not just here, but honestly, if you follow it all throughout the Bible, so many times God's word of assurance is exactly what it was to these shepherds. Do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. I know you didn't see this coming, but God was aware it was coming. And so often God will say in those moments to us, you don't have to be afraid. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I am still in control, though it feels very out of control for you. I am still in complete control, and I'm going to work through this process. In fact, the angel informs them not just that they don't have to be afraid. He tells them, listen, these are things I'm bringing you, good news, he says, of great joy, which will be to all people. In other words, the purpose of all this was actually to bring greater good. It wasn't going to get worse. 
Their life was about to get much better. God was going to bring to pass a good thing that would bless their life tremendously. This unplanned thing was going to lead to a more blessed experience in a way they had never known before previously. The coming of Jesus was a gift for all, verse 10 says, to bring great joy. Interesting, they were greatly afraid and God was bringing great joy and it was something that would be great joy for all people. See, those who encounter Jesus have the blessed privilege to experience this thing the Bible talks about, which is joy. And there's a very dear, dear, big difference between happiness and joy. And it's important we recognize that. Happiness is a feeling in which it's affected by our circumstances. Happenstance is where the word comes from. Happiness is about our situation and our circumstances, but therefore it comes and it goes. For example, you may get tomorrow the shirt or the pants that you've always wanted, and you're really happy as soon as you open that up. Then your wife says, go try that on. And then you put it on, and the buttons are bursting, or, or you can't squeeze the pants, and you realize, mm, Christmas Eve, I knew I shouldn't have. And now all of a sudden, you're not happy. Happy one moment, happiness goes the next moment, because it's based on circumstance and situation. Joy is something different. Joy is a supernatural thing that comes from God, from God's spirit. It's not dependent upon circumstances. In fact, the reality is we can have bad circumstances or difficult circumstances, and part of the fruit of the spirit of God working in the soul of a person is it can give an internal sense of pleasure, an internal sense of that things are still good because God's good. And that though life's hard, there's this sense of an internal joy that can come supernaturally from the Lord, where he produces joy supernaturally by a miracle of his work inside of our heart. It's one of the blessed things of being a believer. And look, for some, the holidays, let's be very honest, for some, the holidays are very difficult times. You may be here this morning, and Christmas is not the hap, hap, happiest time of the year like the songs may say. For some of you, Christmas creates an occasion where it's a little more difficult. It may be one of the harder times, but how wonderful to know that the life of Jesus can still produce great joy, not happiness, but great joy inside of you. That there's an internal joy that can be experienced in the midst of hard things. This morning, if you feel you have nothing else to rejoice in, the Bible says you can rejoice in the Lord. That the joy of the Lord, the Bible says, can be your strength. Think of it, the joy of knowing one's sins are forgiven. Knowing that you're not walking around with guilt and shame before God, that you're freed of that through Jesus. The joy of the total assurance that when the hard times on earth are over, that you're going to enter into the blissful presence of the glory of God. The joy of knowing that though maybe it is hard what you're going through in your circumstances, that Jesus is involved in your life. And like a good shepherd, he'll help you. And he can guide you through the hard times and give you grace and light the way forward. And that God's not angry at you. And that there's joy to be experienced in just prayer and worship and engaging in the presence of the Lord. And there's this blessed gift, this great joy, which God can bring to all people through his son. Notice also in verse 11, we take note that they were informed of the greatest need in their life, 
which was really right relationship with God. He says to them, there is born to you, verse 11, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Take notice of the language there, verse 11. There is born to you. The indication they're emphasizing, born for you, supplied for you personally, he says, a Savior. And when you look up the word Savior by way of definition, it's described this way. A Savior is one who saves from danger or destruction and provides salvation or rescue. That's what a Savior does. If I can illustrate, it's like hanging helplessly from a cliff, knowing you're about to fall to your death and no one's around. You need a Savior at that moment. It's like being tied down to railroad tracks and you can't budge or get up and the train is barreling down on you and you can't get free. You're not going to get yourself free. You need a savior to intervene at that moment and to rescue you from coming destruction. The very fact that God describes his son Jesus as the savior, it indicates something. That every person needs to be saved that we need to be rescued, that we need to be delivered. The Bible is very clear. Romans 3 tells us there is no difference among all of humanity in one area. Oh, there's difference in the way that we look in our social status and our, the privileges. and that we, There's lots of differences on the earth, but the Bible says there's one place where there's no difference. That is that we all sin. And we all fall short of the standard of the glory of God and what it takes to be right before God and going to heaven. And it makes us all mistaken, guilty, imperfect people before a holy and a righteous God. That we think things wrong, we say things wrong, we do things wrong, that we are guilty lawbreakers before a holy God who is our maker and judge, and we deserve eternal punishment in hell, in the lake of fire. That as a lawbreaker, we deserve the sentence for our crimes against God. And the Bible teaches that though being born sinful by nature and doing wrong things, that we are under God's wrath, his holy, righteous wrath, every single human being, that we're enslaved as well to sin's power. But here's the great news. God loves us. And we celebrate today that because God loves us, that Jesus came to be a savior in all of what he accomplished. The Bible says, God, our savior, God himself, who we sin against, who we offend, God himself, not wanting to be our judge, God became our savior through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could save us and spare us and not have to judge us. Jesus said in John 3, 17, the verse that many people don't know follows 3, 16. Jesus said, 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. And then he went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That God, knowing our condition, sent Jesus in that way. But here's the reality, folks. Every human being, you, I, everyone, must choose to believe this spiritual reality of our own condition. Of recognizing that we are sinful and guilty before a holy God. And we can't save ourselves from our own sin. We can't just work our way into good graces with God. We can't do religious works and pay God off. If we could do religious things to fix our situation, why would God send his son into the world? 
and let him be spit upon and mocked and beaten and abused if I could just do enough good religious things to pay God off and be okay. That's, that's ludicrous. The reality is, is there's nothing we can do. We can't earn it. We can't fix it. We can't resolve it. We can't free ourselves from sin's punishment and penalty, and we can't free ourselves from sin's power. That's why we have to realize we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us, to deliver us. This is the whole reason why Jesus came and did all he did. He came as a man to live the life of a human in a sinless, perfect way to satisfy what humanity can't on our behalf as the mediator. He lived the sinless, perfect life that I cannot live and you will never live to satisfy what God requires for entrance into heaven. And then he stepped into our place and took all of our guilt and sin. And he embraced all the punishment as he was punished for our sin so that we don't have to be if we trust in what he's done for us. And Jesus rose from the dead, miraculously defeating death so that he has the power as the risen living savior to save any person who calls on the name of the Lord. The Bible tells us of Jesus in Acts chapter 4 that through him that we must be saved. We must be. It means something must happen. It means there is a time when we must recognize there is a decision to make. Salvation is an actual experience. We don't gradually become a Christian. No, as I've said before, no more than if I go stand in the garage, I don't gradually turn into a car. Some of you are here this morning. I'm glad you're here this morning. You can continue to come here, and I hope you do throughout the whole year long, but you won't gradually turn into a Christian by standing in a church. You need to be saved by Jesus. We must be saved, which means there's an event, a time, a moment. July 12th, 1992. Birthday. Anthony Montemuro, name written in the book of life. There was a day. There needs to be a moment, an hour where we realize that we need to be saved and that we come to the Lord and we experience that, that we are born spiritually. Listen, you can't hide when a baby's born. It's pretty obvious. There must be a moment in where we recognize these things and we respond. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the reality is you have to do that. You got to call on the name of the Lord. You need to believe this to be true, not theologically. You need to believe it to be true for yourself personally and embrace it and respond to it by believing in faith. We don't earn it. We can't. We believe it and we receive it. And Jesus performs it for us in our lives. Notice also that they refer to Jesus here in our text as Christ Jesus. It says the Lord. The word Lord, kurios in the Greek means a master, one who rules over his servants. And Jesus did not just come to save me from my sins. He also came to become ruler over my life because I need Jesus to save me also from the power of my sin and the power of sin that would rule and control my life. I need to live my life no longer for my own selfish interests, but the idea of Lord means I allow him to take over control of my life, that I let go of the steering wheel and I give it to the Lord. And I say, I'm done living for myself in my own selfish ways. I want to follow your direction and let him guide and him direct and do what he wants with our life. That's what we need. That's the essence of what Jesus came for, to spare us and then to rule over us as we choose to let him do that. Let me ask today, are you honoring Jesus' lordship over your life? It's wonderful if you're trusting Christ as fire insurance for your salvation eternally, 
and you want to be spared from hell and know you're going to heaven, but is Jesus Lord over your life? Is he the Lord? Have you surrendered all to him? Are you living for him or are you still living for yourself? What a wonderful Lord and ruler Jesus is. Here's what I can tell you my own personal experience. My life has been much, much better serving him than, than serving my own natural impulses and ideas and feelings. I, I, I would train wreck. Living for him and letting him be in control has made my life way, way better. And Jesus has come not just to be the Savior, but also to be the Lord. Look what goes on to say in verse 12. They tell the angels, or the angels tell the shepherds, this will be the sign they'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, that, that would be nothing out of the ordinary. You swaddle babies. That's normal. But here was the key, lying in a manger. Most people, as I said, did not take their precious newborn baby and lay that child in a manger. The term is a, a, a stone feeding trough. That's not a very hygienic crib. That's not a very clean place to put a brand new baby, but that was all that was available to this lowly, humble, poor Jewish couple. That was the best they had for a crib for Jesus. This family was right in the center of following God's will, but their circumstantial situation was rather difficult at the time. But they were right in the center of God's will, but their circumstances were hard. But the reality was God was doing something much bigger than just temporal circumstances. And as if the first unexpected experience of the angel breaking in and revealing these things, you want to talk about another abrupt change? Look how our text concludes. It says, then suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Speaks of a heavenly army, maybe hundreds or thousands, imagine of angels from heaven break into the moment, praising God, saying glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. All of a sudden, there appears with the one angel now a multitude of angels. And it's like this vast heavenly choir, and it says they were, look what it says, praising God, verse 13, and they were saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. The idea is to the highest extent. All glory to God in the highest extent. God causes a spontaneous worship meeting to break out right in the middle of the dark fields. And all of a sudden now, these angels, like a choir, begin to lead this worship moment of the Son of God and the Father in heaven. These angels who had been worshiping God and the Son of God, Jesus himself, for all of eternity, they now step into the world and they begin to lead a worship service at this moment, and I think, again, they're praising God because they're seeing what God the Father has just done. And they're amazed, the love of God for these people who've rebelled against God and, and disregarded God and spit in the face of God. And now God says, oh, I love them so much, I'm going to give the absolute best I have to them. And the angels go, oh, my goodness, glory to God in the highest. This is incredible. And they see Jesus, who was a king, eternally on a throne, leaving heaven's glory, humbling himself, entering into this world, knowing what he's going to do, and the angels are rightly inspired to praise God with great enthusiasm. With great enthusiasm. You know, let us take our example from heaven's angels here, how important and right it is to praise God. That we would seek to give God glory in the highest way possible and realize, you know what? 
That's what we should be doing, being prompted to give glory to God when we realize what God has done in sending Jesus for us and offering to us all that he offers to us. Notice also what they specifically are referencing, why they were praising God, the reason to celebrate is they said, because on earth there would be opportunity for peace and goodwill toward men. In other words, Jesus' coming would bring the opportunity for mankind, humanity, to be able to experience peace. Now you say, wait a minute. There has not been peace on this earth for all human history, right, circumstantially, because this is a broken world. And with a broken world and sin, there's always problems. And so there will never be peace on this earth circumstantially until Jesus returns. But here's where you can find peace on this earth, right here. Peace internally. That a person can know through Jesus Christ that they're at peace with God. That you can be at rest. I know that I'm at peace with God. I've made peace with God. Something happens to me and I'm not here on Christmas Day. I'm at peace with God. I know where I'm going. I know my sins are forgiven. I know I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm at peace with God. And even more than that, the peace of God, the supernatural inward tranquility to not be in angst and agitated and stress, that you can experience the peace of God even in hardship, even in difficult times that God can give us a peace because we know that God loves us and God's with us. And one of the blessed experiences is not just joy, but also peace. You know, God establishes early on very clear what it means to have a right Christmas, and it's not right circumstances. It's just being right with God through Jesus. What a glorious gift he offers to all of us. 